You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled... The Pleasant Hill School Bus Tragedy. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about charities. Now, most people have the dream that someday they'll be so, so rich that they can set up a charity so that their fortune will serve others long after they're gone. And most people know that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the richest charity in the world. And of course, that was started with the fortune made off of Microsoft. So I'm going to list five additional charities, all of which are real. And your task is to figure out which is the wealthiest charity among them. So which of the following charities has the greatest endowment? Is it one, the Robert Bosch Foundation? Two, the Ford Foundation? Three, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation? the Kresge Foundation, and this is the fortune that came from the company that eventually became Kmart, or five, the Stitching Inca Foundation, and that's Ikea or Ikea, as I know they say in uh, other parts of the world. Again, which of the following charities has the greatest endowment? Is it one, the Robert Bosch Foundation, two, the Ford Foundation, three, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, four, the Kresge Foundation, or five, the Stitching Inca Foundation. And as always, I'll let you ponder over these choices and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Now let's move on to today's main story, which I've called the Pleasant Hill School Bus Tragedy. And the story I'm about to tell you is a sad one. It involves the death of school children. It is very, very different from the deadly Bath, Michigan school bombing of 1927, and I wrote about that story in Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, and I repeated it in podcast number three, so you can go back and listen if you're curious. But just to refresh your memory, in that incident, there was an upset taxpayer named Andrew Kehoe, and he took the lives of 45 people, including 38 young children, their teachers, others, and of course himself. It is also unlike the recent shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary in Connecticut that ended the lives of 28 people, including 20 elementary students. In both those incidents, one person violently took the lives of others. Today's story deals with a freak storm, some bad decision-making by a number of individuals, and just plain really bad luck. 
no guns, no explosives, no deranged individuals. There's no violence involved at all. So let's start with a few basic details. First, the location is 14 miles south of Towner, Colorado. That's just west of the Colorado-Kansas border. And the date was March 26 of 1931, and the population at that time was 3,786 people for the entire county. Basically, nobody lived there. Even worse, nearly half that number are there today. So this is not the type of place you'd expect a story to capture national headlines. But it did. Now that March 26 started out as the perfect day. You see the sun was shining and the morning was exceptionally warm. So the parents woke their children up early and they got them ready for school. Then their bus driver, a local farmer named Carl Miller, joyfully picked up each student on his nearly one hour bus route. Now, if you're thinking one of those big yellow behemoths, you know, with the flashing red lights pulling up to each house to pick up these kids, you would be way off. This was a 1929 Chevrolet farm truck that had been fitted with a removable wooden bus body. It was blue in color and the bus had five windows along each side. The glass was missing from the bus's two rear windows and they were retrofitted with pieces of cardboard. And there were none of those foam padded, you know, green vinyl covered bus seats either. There were just two wooden benches that ran parallel to each other along the bus's outer walls. And lacking a heater, the only way for the kids to stay warm during the treacherous winter months was to bundle up before ever boarding the bus. But you know, none of that was needed today. It was a spectacular day. Gloves, hats, heavy coats, those were all left at home. Now the students attended one of two schools in the Pleasant Hill School District. And just like calling their Jalopia transportation a school bus seems incredibly generous, calling their places education schools is also a bit misleading. You see, these were two one-room schoolhouses that sat near each other in the middle of a barren field. One for grades 1 to 6 and the other for grades 7 and 8. These two buildings were in incredibly bad shape. There was no running water, which means that Carl Miller had to carry the water in every morning on the sideboard of his bus. And you know what that means. If there's no running water, there's no bathrooms either. Just two old-fashioned outhouses behind the elementary school. And centralized heat? Forget that. It didn't exist. There was one coal stove in the corner of each building. By the time Carl Miller dropped the kids off at the school, the sky had turned a dooming dark gray color and the temperature had taken a precipitous drop. Suddenly, snow started falling from the sky at an incredible rate. So the school's teachers, Maud Moser and Franz Friday, immediately consulted with Carl Miller as to what to do next. They felt that if the storm was intense and of long duration, that the students would be trapped inside the school buildings. And you know, without food, water, beds, blankets, and so on, this was just not a good place for the children to stay. But Carl Miller totally disagreed. He argued that the school had the most important thing for the children. That was heat. Ultimately, they came up with what seemed like the best solution at the time. 
Carl Miller would take the students to the nearest farmhouse and they would wait out the storm there. It seemed that this was much better than staying in the poorly equipped school buildings. Well, I doubt that any parent would appreciate 20 students and a bus driver suddenly crashing their home. It was agreed that this was the best place to ride the storm out. So at 9 a.m., early dismissal, the students were loaded back on the bus and off they went to the nearest farm. It was the farm of Bud and Hazel Unteed and their five kids, a few of which were on the bus at the time. This should have been a simple enough drive since a dirt road connected the school buildings directly to the Unteed place. But Carl Miller was blinded by the intense snow and he accidentally drove along the wrong road. He was immediately lost in the whiteout. So he stuck his head out the window to see if he could get his bearings, but he could not. Clearly confused, Miller drove farther and farther and farther from the road. And then, whoomp, the bus dipped and it quickly rose right back up. It had driven into a deep ditch and unable to gain traction, the bus's wheels spun and spun until the engine conked out. So there we have 20 young children ages 7 to 14 and their bus driver stuck without any heat and wearing clothing that was totally inappropriate for the awful weather that had engulfed this bus. Carl Miller immediately swooped into action. First, he asked the oldest boy on the bus, Brian Unteed, to help him drain the radiator so that it wouldn't freeze. Then he attempted to start a small fire in the bus using paper torn from the students' notebooks. Sadly, the paper was damp so it wouldn't ignite easily, and once it did, it filled the cabin of the bus with thick smoke. Carl knew very well they had to keep the children active in an effort to avoid frostbite. He figured that the storm would let up soon and of course everyone would be fine. But the storm didn't let up. A few hours after this whole ordeal started, the cardboard in one of the rear windows finally gave way and the snow started blowing into the bus. By 3 in the afternoon, desperation was starting to set in, so Carl made the decision to send the oldest girl, Clara Smith, along with Brian Unteed, outside to see if they could find a fence line and follow it to the house. They were unsuccessful, so they returned to the bus. And by 6 p.m., the dark moonless night was quickly approaching. The temperature had dropped to well below zero Fahrenheit, and the windshield made it feel much, much colder. Everyone was exhausted, and they had no choice but to huddle close and wait for morning. Now, when the sun rose, there was still no rescue, and Carl Miller knew exactly what he had to do. He had to leave the bus and go get help immediately. He instructed the children to keep moving, you know, to keep exercising, avoid frostbite. So Brian Unteed took charge and he did his best, but the children were quickly losing strength. Sadly, not long after he left, the storm took its first victim. 13-year-old Louise Stonebreaker had frozen to death. A little bit later, 11-year-old Robert Bobby Brown passed away. And this was followed by the youngest victim, 7-year-old Kenneth Johnson. As you can probably imagine, the parents were equally in a panic. They assumed that their children were safe at the school, but they knew they'd be lacking food, water, blankets, and the basic necessities. 
So around noon, Bud Unteed was the first parent to set out for the school. With the wind blowing the snow in every which direction, he could hardly see where he was steering his horses. When he arrived at the school, he was shocked to find that nobody was there. Soon, additional fathers arrived at the school and found the same. The parents were now frantic, and an all-out search had begun. Back on the bus, late afternoon had set in, and it was going to be dark again very soon. Could you imagine the fear of having to spend a second night in the dark, the cold, the blowing snow? It must have been awful. So the older children decided to lay down upon the younger children in an effort to keep them warm. Then suddenly at 5 p.m. on Friday, March 27th, that's 33 hours after this whole ordeal started, the door to the bus suddenly opened and the violent wind blew in. That is when the unteed dad, Bud, entered the bus. Now there was no way that he could have been prepared for the horror that now lie in front of him. Dave Stonebreaker followed him onto the bus only to find the body of his lifeless daughter Louise nearly covered in snow. The two men quickly loaded all 17 of the remaining children onto their wagons and they headed to the nearest farm. That was the farm of Andy and Fern Reinert. The three children that had succumbed to the frigid air were temporarily left behind inside the bus. So the children were now in a warm home, but some were in much worse shape than others. Sadly, two more children, Bud's eight-year-old son Arlo and the missing bus driver Carl Miller's eight-year-old daughter Mary Louise would not survive the night. That brought the total number of deaths to five children. That's one quarter of the students on that bus. As the storm started to die down, a couple of doctors were finally able to reach the farmhouse. But some of the children needed care that only a hospital could provide, and the nearest hospital was 50 miles away in Lamar. There was just no possible way that anyone could drive that distance on such treacherous roads. By 10 a.m. the next morning, the sun was shining. Pilot Jack Hart was able to find a windswept area to land his airplane, and he flew two of the most seriously ill children to the hospital in Lamar. About two hours later, a larger plane called the Fawn arrived to airlift the remainder of the afflicted children. While this larger plane was certainly needed and much appreciated, I should point out that it was paid for by the Denver Post. You see, they sent along both a reporter and a photographer to make sure that they grabbed that front page story. Now keep in mind, while this is all going on, one person is still missing. That's the bus driver, Carl Miller. Sadly, his frozen body was found the next day, about three miles south of the bus. He had apparently followed the fence line until he could not follow it anymore. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Amazingly, none of the surviving children lost a single toe or finger to frostbite. All six of the victims were buried with matching tombstones in a cemetery in Holly, Colorado. The press milked the story for everything that they could. They needed a hero, and Brian Unteed fit the bill very, very well. You see, he was outgoing and well-spoken, and he was the one that they chose. Now, there was a petition started to recognize the oldest girl on the bus, that was Clara Smith, also as a hero, but that never materialized. After being given some recovery time, all of the survivors were given a week-long, all-expenses-paid trip to Denver, but again, it was all a publicity stunt sponsored by the Denver Post. Cameras and reporters followed the children everywhere and recorded their every move. Then, 11 days after the Denver trip ended, Brian Unteed was whisked off to Washington, D.C. to meet with the President of the United States, Herbert Hoover. You see, with the country deep in the Depression, Hoover's staff arranged the meeting in an effort to humanize Hoover and make him seem more compassionate. Naturally, the teachers were blamed by many for this disaster. Both did finish out the school year, but they never returned to the Pleasant Hill schools again after that. Maud Moser worked the rest of her career teaching in the Vinland School District in Pueblo, Colorado. She passed away in 1980. The other teacher, Franz Friday, was just 27 years old when he died from a lung ailment in 1934. As for the children, Brian Unteed passed away in December of 1977. Clara Smith died in 1997 on her wedding anniversary. As for the other 13 children that survived, a number of them are still alive today. And there is an excellent summary of what happened to each one of them in a book titled Children of the Storm, and that is written by Arianna Harner and Clark Seacrest. I really do recommend that book. Now, I figured mentioning all of those names in the story would just make it hard to follow, but they really are all heroes. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. But now, attention everybody please for an important secret message. Broadcast in Annie's new 1936 Mystery Radio Code. So all you 1936 members, get your pencils and papers ready to take it down. First, we always give you the special code key. And tonight's secret message is coming in the O21 code. Did you get that? O21 is the special code key for tonight's secret message. So write O21 down on your paper right now so you won't forget it. And here's the secret message itself. First word, 24, 12, 12, 17, 13. Second word, 14, 17, 6, 17, 26, 6. Third word, 15, 24, 
22, 13, 6, fourth and last word, 13, 4, 1, 21, 20, 17, 19, 4. That's all, and that was another secret message in Annie's new 1936 Mystery Radio Code. So all you 1936 members who have your super decoder pins and secret books, get busy and figure it out right now. Just set your super decoder pin at 021, the way I told you before I read the message. And it figures the whole thing out for you in a jiffy. And say, if you haven't sent in for your 1936 membership yet and are missing out on all the fun of figuring out these secret messages from Annie, you certainly want to get busy and join right away. Remember, it's absolutely free if you're drinking your Ovaltine regularly because here's all you have to do. Just print your name and address plainly on a piece of paper. Then mail it in together with all of the thin, round aluminum seal from underneath a lid of a can of Ovaltine to Little Orphan Annie, Chicago, Illinois. Or if you live in Canada, mail it to Ovaltine, Peterborough, Ontario. That's all there's to it. And then Annie sends you the beautiful gold-colored super decoder pin and the new 1936 official book of secrets. So get busy and send him this very night. And be here right on time tomorrow at 545 because there's going to be an awful lot happening in Simmons Corners from now on. Excitement you don't want to miss. We'll see you tomorrow at 545 then. Goodbye. That commercial for Ovaltine is from the 1936 episode of Little Orphan Annie and is titled, Mr. Flint is Selling Stock in the Toll Bridge. So did you pull out your decoder pin and try to figure out what the secret message was? I didn't have one, so I tried to figure it out myself. I started with what I remembered of that famous scene in the 1983 movie, A Christmas Story. That's where Ralphie gets his secret decoder pin in the mail, and he eagerly tries to decipher the little Orphe Annie message. And when he does, it disappointingly deciphers to, quote, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. And that's when he states, quote, a crummy commercial, and blurts out an expression that I won't repeat here. So then I looked at the message and noticed that the last word had eight letters. That's just like Ovaltine does. So it had to be Ovaltine. Maybe, but it just didn't work. No matter what I did, all the other words were gibberish. And that's where the internet comes in handy. Just go to RadioArchives.com and find the listing for their Little Orphan Annie CD set. At the bottom of the page, you can print out your own decoder pin. I did just that, and what it really said was, quote, Annie visits Jake's Emporium. It turns out that the secret messages were never about Ovaltine. That's just an urban myth. It was always a brief hint as to what the next day's show was all about. If you think about it, this is an incredibly clever way for the makers of Ovaltine to sell more product. That's because you had to buy a can of Ovaltine, remove its foil seal, and then mail it in to get your free decoder pin. Even better, they changed the arrangement of the letters each year so 1935's pin couldn't be used to decipher 1936's messages. So you had to go buy more Ovaltine. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. Our first story is from July 2nd of 1939 and discusses the results of a National Gallup poll. 
just two questions were asked. First, quote, do you think it's indecent for women to wear shorts for streetwear? By gender, 57% of the males and 70% of the women thought that this was, in fact, indecent. The second question was, quote, do you think that it's indecent for men to wear topless bathing suits for swimming? 33% thought that it was, and 67% felt that it was fine for men to go swimming without their tops on. Boy, have times changed. Next, it was reported on November 17th of 1954 that the Connecticut Fish and Game Department had its most unusual capture ever. My bet is you're thinking it was like, you know, an elephant, a tiger, a cheetah, or, you know, some other big wild animal, but it wasn't. It was actually a 125 foot by 75 foot by 7 foot thick, that's 38 by 23 by 2 meter thick, get this, it was a runaway island. You see, the itinerant island had broken free in Connecticut's Bolton Lakes during a heavy rainstorm. The island supported the growth of cedar trees, which served as masts and sails that drove this island right into boats and docks. So the conservation officers used motorboats to steer the island back into shore, and then of course they tied it temporarily in place. Three months later, cranes and bulldozers were brought in to break up the island. Now I did some checking, and these floating islands have been a fairly common occurrence on the three Bolton Lakes. You see, there's a layer of peat that surrounds this vegetation, and the peat makes the vegetation deposits buoyant, you know, producing floating islands when the water level rises. Now, most of the so-called islands are relatively small, but of course, in this case, this one was exceptionally large. And our last tidbit for today appeared in the press on September 28th of 1962. It seems that a 35-year-old New York City dock worker named Victor Rosario, he had been arrested back in 1958 for supposedly kicking his wife Carmen in the stomach and swinging a bailing hook at both her and the arresting policeman. At the time of his arrest, Victor stated, quote, My wife and the border are framing me. The police beat me up and they knocked out my teeth. My wife's lover drinks blood. And that's the end of the quote. Psychiatrists at Bellevue Hospital declared that Rosario was suffering from paranoia with delusions of being persecuted. And over the next four years, nine different psychiatrists were told 17 different times the same exact story. He just wouldn't let go of that drinking blood claim. So fast forward to 1962, and Rosario decided to write to the law offices of Zapata and Halbert seeking their assistance. Attorney Sarah Halbert was assigned to the case, and upon investigation, she checked with Rosario's wife and their two children. And what did she find out? She found out that the border did, in fact, drink blood. Then, Mrs. Halbert obtained a sworn statement from Carmen Rosario that her husband's entire story was, in fact, true. While those nine doctors had consistently ruled him insane, it was finally admitted that they were all wrong, and Rosario became a free man. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked which of the following charities has the greatest endowment. And your choices were one, the Robert Bosch Foundation, two, the Ford Foundation, 
three, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, four, the Kresge Foundation, or five, the Stichting, uh, can never pronounce this, the Stichting Inca Foundation. So let's start in reverse order. Uh, the Kresge Foundation ranks as number 29 on the list of richest charities. The Robert Bosch Foundation ranks as number 14. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation comes in at number 11, and the Ford Foundation comes in at number 3. That leaves IKEA's Stitching Inca Foundation as the world's second wealthiest behind, of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, it once was the richest charity until Bill Gates and Warren Buffett combined their efforts together in 2006. Now, if you're curious, the Inca name comes from the IKEA founder's name, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this, Ingvar Kamprad. Uh, it's the first three letters of Ingvar and the first two letters of Kamprad. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard about the IKEA Foundation giving away billions of dollars, you know, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does. And that's because it doesn't. As far as the outside world can tell, this charity was set up for just one purpose. That was so IKEA could avoid paying taxes. Now, most people think that IKEA is a Swedish company, but this charity that owns nearly all of the stores is a Dutch-registered company. That's right, IKEA is technically a Dutch company. Make that a tax-exempt Dutch charity. Now, it's a lot easier to explain on paper, but let me try to give you a quick overview of how IKEA is set up. Now, before I do, I need to tell you that I spent several hours reading through various articles, and I'm still not sure that I have it exactly correct. There's just a lot of contradictory information out there. First, excluding a small number of franchisees, the majority of the stores are owned by the for-profit Dutch company Inca Holding. But 100% of this business is owned by the non-profit Stichting Inca Foundation that I mentioned before. But wait, there's a whole different separate entity to IKEA. While the Inca Foundation may own the bulk of the IKEA stores, it does not own the IKEA trademark or its franchise concept. No, that is owned by a totally separate Dutch company called Inter IKEA Systems, and they get 3% of the profits of every single IKEA store as a royalty payment. And it gets even messier. Inter IKEA Systems is owned by Inter IKEA Holding in Luxembourg, but until recently nobody knew who owned that company. But it was recently learned that it's owned by another company, Interago Group, in Liechtenstein. So what does this all mean? Well, it depends on who your source is. IKEA will probably tell you that it was all basically done to protect the company from the possibility of a takeover. And most people conclude that this structure really does do that. But if you ask anyone outside the IKEA organization, they will likely tell you just one thing. It's set up so that IKEA can pay as little tax as possible. A story in the May 11, 2006 issue of The Economist was titled Flat Pack Accounting, and it was the first major publication to bring this unusual corporate structure, uh, you know, to the public's attention. It reported that the foundation was set up to give grants for, get this, quote, innovation in the field of architectural and interior design. At the time, they concluded that Inga, quote, is not only the world's richest foundation, but is at the moment also one of its least generous. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So how much money did a charity worth $36 billion in 2006 you know, give away to charity that year? The Economist estimated that there was basically just one gift of $1.7 million to the Lund Institute of Technology in Sweden. If I did my math right, and I did check this online because it, the number just seemed ludicrous, that's a little less than 0.005% of their total endowment. This bad PR caused Mr. Kompra to fight for over a year in Dutch courts to get the charter changed so that it would have more flexibility in where it could donate its money. And by 2010, the foundation was giving away about $65 million per year to suffering children in developing countries. More recently, stories appeared in the press documenting the fact that Mr. Kompra was a member of a Swedish socialist group and that that group supported Nazi Germany during World War II. Now, he was a young man, about 17, 18 years old when this happened, but again, it was bad PR for the company. So he issued an apology, and he instructed the foundation to more than double its annual charitable contributions. Now, I'm not really trying to pick on Ikea here. I just really thought this was an interesting story, and the more I looked into it, the more I was shocked by what I read. But I will leave you with one last thing. And that is that one article I read said that Ikea pays about 3.5% tax on its profits each year. And I'm just curious, what percentage do you pay on your profits per year? Kind of gives you something to think about. Well, I hope that you enjoyed listening to today's podcast, even if the main story on the bus tragedy was a sad one. And I probably did a little bit too much research on the structure of Ikea. As always, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, uh, both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. If you live in North America, you can also download the digital editions of these books. I should also mention that the podcast is now available on Stitcher. That's stitcher.com. You can go there and download the app for the iOS or the Android operating system. Uh, They do have over 10,000 shows to choose from, and mine is one of them. Uh, Again, you can get the app at stitcher.com. Additional resources, including scans of some of the original research documents, additional comments on the podcast, and, of course, related links, can be found on my Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com, as if you don't know that. Facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's all one word, useless information podcast. Uh, You can also email me at useless at steve.silverman.name if you would like. Uh, You can also visit my website. It's uselessinformation.org. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.